chapter 10, and we'll read verse 22 through 42. And stand with me, if you're able to, in honor of God's Word. John chapter 10, and verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do ye stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, Ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, Thou blasphemest? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand, and went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John had first baptized and there he abode. And many resorted unto him, and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your many, many mercies to us. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the peace and freedom that we yet enjoy. We pray for our country. And uh, we pray for our families. We pray for our church. We pray that you speak to each heart today. Bless our pastor and give him wisdom and guidance as he preaches the word to us today. And, Lord, we thank you that we do have the privilege to meet here and do what we do. We pray that we would uh, honor and glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you and be seated. We continue the theme of the great shepherd, or rather the good shepherd, that is used in chapter 10. This <clears throat> is a hard passage. Not hard so much in explanation, but as in comprehension and, and understanding. And what I mean by that, it's not so complicated, we can't understand it. But how can, how can somebody who should know so well that this is Jesus Christ, God the Son, 
and be so blind and so hard-hearted. Now that, that's difficult. To, to know the Lord, and, and, and we can't say this because we are so much better than anybody else. Like Paul said, by the grace of God, we are what we are and what God has made us. But with what we know, it's like, how could anybody reject the Lord Jesus Christ? But here we see it is done and possible. Uh, It is a record of the reality of John chapter 1 and verse 11, where it said, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. It's one thing to be rejected by strangers. It is one thing to be rejected by the wicked. But it's quite another thing to be rejected by those who are called the children of God, who profess to be the children of God, but don't act like it. That's the hard thing here. In this passage, we see the collision of two extremes. First, let me highlight the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ through his repeated answering and reaching out to his most hostile enemies. My, isn't our God good? Doesn't he have great compassion? Doesn't he have, without measure, well, it is measurable because there will come an end to his long suffering and the wrath will will hit. But the the extent of his long suffering When I think about that, it chides with me and my character. I'm not that patient. People that uh, reject Christ, reject me, it's a whole lot easier for me to just shut them out. But do you know, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't do that. He continued to reach out to those in great need. And that's who they are here. Uh, And so we have the, the second Extreme is the intense rejection of self-righteous unbelief. Not the unbelief of the pagans. Not the unbelief of the uh, overtly wicked. But the unbelief of the self-righteous. That's the other extreme that have come in conflict and intersected in and collided in this particular chapter. Now, I want to work through this passage and see what the Lord has to teach us today. And we're going to start here in verse 22 and look at this and we'll kind of work our way through this passage. And then I'll have some conclusions about great lessons that God has taught me from this passage. But in verse 22, we find the, uh, the time frame of this encounter. Now, one of the things that I had mentioned previously is that we are now down to the last six months prior to the arrest, trial, and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're getting into that final stage of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we would also understand that it would be in December when this took place. And so it gives us a little clear idea just how close or how soon he will be arrested and tried and crucified. And it says the time it was winter 
Easter, and it's the Feast of Dedications that he went to celebrate. In the Bible, you go back to the Old Testament, there were several major feasts that God had instituted and he gave to Moses when he gave the law and all of the tabernacle and all of the instructions. There was the, the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Passover and each of those major feasts that were given. This is not one of them. Those feasts were older and ordained by God and given through Moses for the children of Israel to observe. This feast had its origin in about 165 B.C. Give you a little bit of lesson history and time frame. You remember how uh, Judah was the surviving kingdom and they were sent into captivity. And uh, they were 70 years in captivity in Babylon. And at the end of the 70 years of captivity, Cyrus gave the decree just as God promised through the prophets. And to the day, the, the decree came that they could go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the wall and the temple. And this is the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and three of the prophets that spoke during that time frame. And that happened 70 years. By the time we get to the end of that, and Malachi would have been one of the prophets there, there's 400 years. That was the last time that God spoke to the children of Israel. There was 400 years between that point and Matthew when Christ uh, in his first advent. There's 400 years. A lot of times it's been called the 400 silent years. They, They were not silent politically and war and all of that. They were silent because God did not speak to his people for 400 years. But during that time, some tragic things happened. Again, Israel began, the children of Israel began moving away from God. And there was some battles. And and, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a horrifically wicked man uh, of the B.C. era, had come in, taken over the area... Uh, and went in and and offered uh, abominable sacrifices and defiled the temple. It was the time of the Maccabees, the Jewish Maccabees. These are the ones that came in, and and uh, they finally stood up for what was right and stood up against him, and they finally run him out and reclaimed the temple and reclaimed the area. And as a result of that, they purified the altar and the temple, and that is called the Feast of Dedications. And so every year thereafter, they would observe the Feast of Dedication. Today it is called Hanukkah, and that's what it looks back to. It's, it's a different name, but that same feast, and, and celebrating the time when they were able to reclaim the temple and purify it and worship there. And so this is the time, this is the season, this is the occasion when Jesus comes into that temple area. And the specific location, here he comes to the temple and probably the court of the Gentiles, not inside the, the worship area, whether it be the holy place or, or that, but, but in the court of the Gentiles so his ministry could be broader than just the Jewish people. We would understand that there's a little bit of a time break, not a long one, maybe a few days or whatever, between verse 21 and 22 from one crowd to the next, but some of it was probably some of the same people. 
and he comes into that area and whatever he was doing, have you ever just walked into some place and somebody's right there to meet you? They've been waiting to talk to you. Well, I hope it wasn't like these guys were waiting. I don't know if, if he just walks in and, and they're right there. We've been looking for you and this is our question. Or whether he was there and he had interacted with the people for a little bit and began preaching and teaching. And the uh, Pharisees, the Jews, that's the leadership, they found out he's here and he's out there preaching and teaching again. Let's go confront him. I'm not sure exactly how that took place. We know when and where this happened. And now we know a little bit about how this conversation took place. So they come up to him. And the very first question... it doesn't even say they said hi. Maybe they said hi. I don't know how they gre- greeted one another in the old Jewish culture. Uh, but I don't know if they even greeted each other or whatever. But it's like they just walked up and they say, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. That's what they ask. Do you know what I find interesting here? No one is more proactive in attacking the truth than a false believer. They will do more to attack Christ and attack truth than probably anybody else. Here they attack Christ and who he is. Today they will attack the church, they will attack Christians, they will attack the Bible. But it's false believers who want to live like the world and justify it by condemning those that want to walk with God. And so here they came. How long do you cause us to doubt? It's an antagonistic question. And it's as though they are blaming Jesus for their unbelief. You know, you say we don't believe, but it's your fault. Why don't you tell us? And that's so classic. People that reject biblical truth and want to go their own route will frequently blame Christians blame the church, blame God. They even blame God when something bad happens in their life and uh, they don't get what they want or they got something that, that was very undesirable. They'll blame God for their unbelief. And that's exactly what they're doing here. They don't believe He is God the Son. They don't believe He was the promised Messiah. And now they want to blame Him for their unbelief. However... Jesus had not hidden this answer. In fact, he said, I told you. Nobody likes to hear, I told you so. (laughs) But that's exactly what he is saying. I have told you. So undoubtedly, prior to this point, and contrary to some people's thinking... The Lord Jesus Christ, and we could, we don't have time, but we could find places where Jesus Christ clearly told them that he was God the Son, God incarnate, that he was the Messiah. In fact, it was so clear that in simplicity, those who wanted to see it could see it. Turn back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 40. This is when Christ was beginning to gather the disciples around him. And in verse 40, And one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the who? 
caught you off guard. Let me try that again. We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. They figured it out that quickly. Drop down to verse 49. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Here was another one that came and became an ap- a disciple and an apostle. Very clearly understood, even at the front of the public ministry of Christ, understood that this was Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now turn over to chapter 4. John chapter 4 and verse 42. This is the encounter when the Lord says, I need must go through Samaria, and the encounter with the Samaritan woman. And uh, we would understand that in all of this encounter, she gets saved. She runs into the town and says, hey, there's a man out here that's told everything about me. He knows everything about me. You got to go see him. And the men run out. And their conclusion is in verse 42. Let me back up to verse 41. And many more believed because of his own word and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, not because a woman told him so. Doesn't that sound like a skies? <laughs> We're not going to admit it because a woman told us. But here's, let's go on. Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And so this isn't something that the Lord Jesus Christ had kept secret. He had not been working covertly. He had publicly announced and stated, and it was stated over and over, that he was the Messiah, he is the Son of God, yet out of their blindness and hardness of heart, they continued to reject. You see, the Pharisees did not want the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. They didn't want a Savior. What the Pharisees were looking for was somebody that was going to be political and a military leader. They wanted somebody to overthrow Rome and and put off the bondage of Rome and the influence of Rome and and set up their own government for the government of Israel. And in the next coming of Christ, he will do that. He will defeat every army of this world and he will become king of kings and lord of lords and reign a thousand years. But that wasn't the purpose in his first advent. They were not willing to accept a suffering Savior as their Messiah, and so they willfully rejected. Now, let's look at how Jesus answered them when they said, How long are you going to keep it a secret and keep us in doubt? Well, the very first thing he says in in, uh, verse 25, I told you, and you believed not. You refuse to believe. It's not a lack of credentials. It was a lack in their heart and an unwillingness to believe. The issue is not the lack of evidence, but the hardness of heart. And you know that that is the same truth today. In most cases, now somebody that has not heard the gospel and not heard much about the Bible 
There may be some lack in evidence before they can believe. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So they need to hear the word of God before they can put their faith in Jesus Christ. But a lot of times, the lack of belief is not because there's a lack of evidence, but it's because of a hardness of heart and unwillingness to believe. Let me share with you some of the evidences and the testimonies given to them. And as the Jewish leadership, they should have grasped, this is no ordinary man. In fact, this isn't just man. It's the God-man, the Messiah, God incarnate himself. Here's some of the evidences. First, his miraculous conception. I know a lot of times we talk about the, the virgin birth, but it was more the conception than the birth that, that had the, the miracle and the uniqueness of it. In this, here is an opportunity. Now, we do realize and understand that when a young lady becomes pregnant and not married, I think we would be inclined to believe that she had had an adulterous relationship. I'm not going to play like I would be better than them to first think that, oh, wow, this is a miraculous pregnancy that's happening here. But do you know, later they become enough evidence to validate that this is what would be called the virgin birth. But yet they rejected that sign, that miracle. But here's another one to build on top of that. And that is that he... Jesus Christ was of the line of David in a miraculous way. There's two genealogies that are given of Jesus Christ. In Matthew, it's the genealogy of Joseph. And in there, it goes all of the way back to David, and it takes it back to David to prove that he was of the lineage of David. However, jo- Joseph was out of David's great-great-great-grandson, and it would be David and Solomon, David's son, and in that genealogy, and it was Jeconiah, who was the last king of Judah. And the prophet came and said that none of his seed would ever set on the throne of David again. Now, Joseph was of that line, and he was not the father of Jesus Christ. However, as the stepfather, he gives Jesus Christ the right to the throne because of that lineage. But Jesus was not of the seed of Jeconiah. Then the other genealogy is in Luke, and that's the genealogy of Mary. Her heritage goes back to Nathanael, or Nathan, the son of David, not Solomon, a different one. And so now the blood rite actually comes through Mary, who is the actual mother, and her lineage goes all the way back to David, but a different son to give Jesus Christ the blood rite, and Joseph as the stepfather, his lineage goes back through Jeconiah and Solomon and to David, that gives him the right to the throne, 
but still not his seed. Now, is that not a miracle? That is not coincidental. That was a fulfillment of every promise that God had given in the Old Testament for the birth of Jesus Christ. They could have figured it out just like we've got it figured out. They had all of that evidences just like you and I have today. Another evidence that they had, it was his teachings. They had listened to his teachings. The crowd said, and even those that, that were sent by the, the, uh, temple, or the temple police that were sent by the leadership, when they were to go and arrest him and they came back, they said, never a man taught like this. Earlier, another said, he teaches with authority. He doesn't teach like men. If they would have listened to his teaching and paid attention to his teaching, Over and over again, they would have discovered that he never once misinterpreted, misrepresented the Word of God. He always taught it accurately. You know, I would love to have sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to him teach and explain the Old Testament. Maybe he'll do that when we're up there in eternity. You know, all of those passages in Daniel and Ezekiel and and Zephaniah and and all of those uh, prophetic books and and how all of that really fit together and and the divine explanation of all of that. If they would have sat and listened, they would discover that his teaching was never contrary to any of the Old Testament. But it was always accurate, perfect, and true. You know, I, I intend to preach that way, but because of my humanity, I don't, uh, ask, I, I don't reach that type of level. And every now and then I'll have somebody remind me of my fallibility and say, Preacher, did you really mean to say this? And they do it in a great spirit, and I appreciate that. It tells me they're listening. But do you know what? He never goofed. It was always right. His, the pregnancy that bore him, his lineage, his teaching, his character. It was said that they could not convict him of any sin. The Bible says, he who knew no sin. It's not only a matter that he did not sin, it was a matter he could not sin. You know, with you and me, sin is a choice. If we do not sin, it's because we choose not to sin. But with the Lord Jesus Christ, he did not sin because he could not sin. He was sinless from beginning and beyond. He was perfect. There was absolutely nothing they could accuse him of. And then with his works, in fact, he talks about that here. It gets to the point, he says, if you don't believe what I say, look at my works. Believe it for the works that I do. There was others that believed it. Turn to Matthew, if you would. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Beginning with verse 1. And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach 
in their cities. Now, when John had heard in prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. And you see, it was the works that, that caused him to say, okay, let's send somebody and ask this question. And he said unto them, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. Here's the works he did. The blind received their sight. This is according to the prophecy of the Old Testament that the Messiah would do on this earth during his first advent. The blind received their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. And they, they recognize that nobody, absolutely nobody in history but Jesus Christ had ever cleansed a leper. Now you go back to the Old Testament, it was God that did that when he washed. The, the prophet told him what to go do, but it is only God that performed that miracle. Dead or raised and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Jesus said, look at what I'm doing. Look at my works. Do you know what? It's it's encouraging to hear somebody say, I'm a Christian. But if you have to boast and give a whole lot of explanation as to why you think you're a Christian, I'd rather watch your life and watch your works. Don't give me a commentary on it. Just let me see your life. I'm not from Missouri, but this is probably one of those occasions. Show me. Show me that you're a Christian. Let me see it in your life. And then the other one was, I told you. The greatest evidence is possible will never be understood when there is willful blindness and a willful hardening of the heart. That's the problem. There was no lack of evidences. The lack was in their heart and a lack of willingness to believe. Jesus next gives an even greater spiritual answer. You don't believe me because you're not my sheep. He says, my sheep, we know each other. They know me, I know them. They hear my voice and they follow me. He goes back to what he had spoken and taught previously in this chapter about being the good shepherd and the relationship of the shepherd with his sheep. You see, I think there is a test of sheephood. I don't know if that's actually a a word, but there is a test of what it means to really be a sheep of God. First, they have... It says here, they know him and follow him. The greatest brand of Christianity is obedience to God. I can use that term. I grew up ranching. Uh, I probably slapped a brand on I don't know how many thousand different head of cattle. Had my own brand as well and, and put that on. And when you saw that 7VM brand on the cattle, you knew it belonged to the M. Lloyd Miller Hereford Ranch that I was a part of. Well, the greatest brand of identity of being a sheep and being a child of God is obedience. They follow me. Jesus Christ said, if you love me, obey my commandments. Do my commandments. That's the greatest brand 
of identity. And then once a sheep, always a sheep, as he puts it here. This is security in the fold. Notice it says in John chapter 10, verse 28, I give unto them eternal life. Over and over again in the New Testament, one of the prevailing truths is that salvation is a gift of God, not of works. If you want to know whether, here's one red flag, if a religion or a denomination or a church or whatever it is that is straying from the word of God, it's when they start telling you you have to help your faith with works to be saved. If I could work to get my salvation, why did Christ die? If I could even work enough to help it out, why did Christ die? Salvation is fully by grace and a full gift of God. He gives eternal life. The next thing, we see eternal security. Once saved, always saved. And and here he declares it. No man can pluck, and this is by declaration. Jesus Christ said it. No man can pluck, pluck you out of our hands. That includes ourselves. We simply can't do it. We are saved by grace. We are kept by grace. And it's not a license to sin. If people think that they got saved and now they have a license to sin, I think they ought to check whether they're really saved or not. Because God does a real change in our heart. And God does such a change in our heart. Oh yeah, we can sin and we may make a quick choice. But here's the difference is when we do sin, there is a guilt and a conviction from the Holy Spirit. He convicts us of our sin, and we regret it, and we say, Lord, forgive us, help us not to do it again. For an unbeliever, they commit sin, and they'll take pleasure in it, and they may never really get convicted about it, unless they might get caught or cause problems, and, boy, I wish I hadn't have done that. But for the child of God... God's changed our want to. He's changed our heart. And if and when we do sin, there is grief sooner or later and typically sooner than later. And we ask God's forgiveness and we ask Him to help us not to go back to that again. That's the difference. The bottom line, Jesus Christ said, you can't take Him out of my hand. Nobody can. You can't remove yourself out of the hand. It's by declaration. But do you know just saying something is not enough? You have to have the power and the authority to back it up. I've watched in some of the news, there's uh, football teams that are already claiming they're going to be the national champions this year for football. You know what? They can claim it. Now they've got to prove it. They've got to have the power and the authority and the, and the ability to win the games and prove it. it, it it's one thing... To make the declaration, and he had the the right to make that declaration. But then it says, my father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hands. God the Father has the authority, and he has the power to never let it happen. That's the security of the believer. Now to these Jewish leaders, it was in essence saying, you're not my sheep, and you've never been my sheep. And here's the problem. And then he says, I and my father are one. 
That is the next statement that he gives. He is declaring very literally, very unmistakably, that he is the Son of God. This verse declares what theologians call the hypostatic union. It's not that they were of the same pedigree. And it's not that they were kind of like each other. But it's saying that they are one. One in nature. One in person. One in work. One in heart. You can't separate God the Son from God the Father. God the Son was was a manifestation of what God the Father is. And so you just can't separate. He claims to be God. There's certain things that the human finite mind just cannot comprehend. I have a father, I have a grandfather, I have a son, I have grandsons. And I even have great-grandsons. I should feel old, but I don't. But do you know what? We're of the same blood, but I'm a different person than my son. I'm of the same blood, but I'm a different person than my daddy. In this, they are one. Over and over, I and my father one. This is the part of the one that you can see. Uh, and the word became flesh. John 1.14. He was manifested so that we could see. I want you to look at a couple verses here. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. All through the Old Testament, he used the prophets to speak. And then it was written down and became the written word of God. Hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, that would be Jesus Christ, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Who being the brightness of his, the Father's glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the world of his power. We were uh, up to camp. Elijah and Sarah had a little baby uh, about a month ago, and all three were there at camp. I thought that little girl really looked like her daddy. Everybody in these little babies probably see something different, but choose the image. That's the physical feature. When it's talking here, the expressed image, it goes beyond just physical. It's the very essence, the holiness, the character, the deity. He was the revealed image of God the Father. Now, turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. While you're looking for John chapter 14, and I'll begin reading in verse 7, this is when the the disciples were saying, show us the Father and and help us to understand some things here. There's a lot of people that that say, um, you know, I like Jesus of the New Testament, but I don't like God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament, he seems rather harsh. 
He, he's rather uh, a blunt and quick with judgment. You know, he's the one that ordered the the uh, annihilation of all of the Canaanites, and and he just put in some pretty hard uh, laws with consequences of the Old Testament. And they say, I, I really don't like God the Father, but I do like Jesus Christ of the New Testament. And they talk about his compassion and, and his love and his image. Folks, understand this. You can't separate the two. In all of the hardness that you think is in the Old Testament, God the Son and God the Father were one. Jesus Christ in his first coming demonstrated the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But when God the Son, Jesus Christ, comes in his second coming, he will demonstrate the wrath of God. And it will be the Son of God that will demonstrate and execute the wrath of God upon all that is evil and upon all that is wicked. And yes, there will be consequences for that evil. But in John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7, If ye had known me, Jesus says, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believe thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father. And the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. So here we would understand that he is declaring his oneness with the Father. Contrary to what the Jehovah Witness and other religions say, Jesus did very clearly claim to be God the Son, the Son of God, God incarnate, not simply a God little g. I'm out of time this morning. I'm going to have to come back and give some explanation to certain of those verses in here about, uh, he says, you you called your uh, men of Old Testament gods. Why are you trying to stone me for claiming to be God? There really is some good explanation to that. I'll have to come back later and, and teach on that and give you some understanding. But they sought to stone him. Jesus said, for what good work? They said, we don't stone you for a good work. We stone you because you call yourself God. It wasn't just blasphemy of of taking God's name in vain. It was claiming to be God. One of the principles of Bible interpretation is, what did the original audience understand to be stated? They fully understood that he claimed to be God incarnate. Right here. His final challenge, if you don't believe what I say, then believe me for what I have done. Here is a testimony of the compassion and long-suffering of Jesus Christ. Over and over they tried to kill him, but it wasn't his time and wasn't God's method for him to die. And he escaped it. But this is the same people that Jesus Christ was dying for. When it says that he died, he tasted death for every man, he tasted death on the cross even for these And God had compassion to reach out to them yet again with the gospel message. He escapes another attempt because it was not his time and retreats beyond Jordan where his public ministry began by the baptism of John the Baptist and 
assembles with believers there. Very quickly, two things that I learn. Those who falsely claim to be children of God will typically be the most difficult to reach. And that's because they have developed a heart of willful blindness and a determined hardness of heart. They do not look for truth. They look for excuses. They do not look for evidences of truth. They want to ignore that. They look for excuses to justify themselves and how they live and condemn the righteous. But maybe more importantly, we also learn the heart of compassion demonstrated in Christ. How Christ not only reached out, but repeatedly reached out to his most hostile enemies that wanted to destroy them. And he reached out, giving them opportunity to believe. It would be for men like this and them as well that Jesus Christ stood over Jerusalem on the mount and cried, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I gather thee like a hen gathers her chicks? And you would not. We learn the great compassion. Folks, there are those that you will witness to and they will reject and you will witness to and they will reject. Understand there's going to be some people like that. And out of some of them, like Nicodemus and maybe certain others, along the way, they may get saved. But Christ never gave up. That's a hard thing. I remember how my grandma Sukra prayed for one of her daughters, uh, my mom's sister, Margaret, who had left home early from the ranch, went out to California with a very rebellious heart, and grandma and grandpa prayed for her salvation until the day the two died, and she did not get saved. My mom took up the baton to pray for her sister's salvation, and uh, before Margaret died, she called my mom and said, I need to be saved. Do you know, sometimes that hardness of heart can almost transcend between two generations. But out of the goodness of God, God answered that prayer. Just don't give up too soon on somebody you're praying for or trying to reach. Father, we come to you this morning, and what a, <clears throat> what a tremendous lesson we have here. Lord, uh, help us to understand those that we are trying to witness and trying to reach. And then, Father, more importantly, let us understand our Lord and the testimony and example you have left us. Help us, O God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Foothills Baptist Gospel Hour. For more information about Foothills Baptist Church of Loveland, Colorado, you may visit our website at foothillsbaptistchurch.com. If you wish to donate to this radio ministry, please make your check payable to Foothills Baptist Church and mail to P.O. Box 771, Loveland, Colorado, 80539. Once more, please make your check payable to Foothills Baptist Church and mail to P.O. Box 771, Loveland, Colorado, 80539. Or you may go to our website at foothillsbaptistchurch.com and click on the Give tab. We would love to have you visit our regular Sunday services with morning worship at 9.30, Sunday school at 10.50, and Sunday evening at 5 o'clock. And until we meet again, be sure you are... Living
Mike Morris, owner of Warriors Revolution Tactical in Longmont. At Warriors Revolution, we have the largest selection of tactical gear and ammo in northern Colorado. But what many people may not know is that we now sell firearms. And even despite the recent run on firearms and ammunition, we have plenty of product in the store, including ARs, AKs, Glocks, SIGs, HK, and more. And don't forget all the bulk ammunition at the best prices in town. Need to do a private firearms transfer? We can do that, too. I am a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. And our team is made up of veterans and security experts, not a bunch of salesmen. Our team is trained and fought with much of the actual equipment we sell. 
And one thing you should know is that we support the foundations and principles this great country was founded upon. So if you need tactical gear, ammo, firearms, AR parts or upgrades, and even survival accessories, stop by and visit us on Ken Pratt Boulevard and Bowen Street in Longmont. Or visit WarriorsRevolution.com. That's WarriorsRevolution.com. Tehewo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit TeheboTeaClub.com. Tehebo is spelled T like Tom, A-H-E-E-B like boy, O, then continue with the word T and then the word club. The complete website is TeheboTeaClub.com or call us at 818-610-8088, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-610-8088, TeheboTeaClub.com. Tommy here with Revo Knives. We're a Colorado company looking for local customers who own a business that want to make a gift for their customers or employees that they'll always use and remember. We customize our knives with your logo and information so they always look at who to get back to when they need your service. Head over to our website at RevoKnives.com or give us a call at 720-947-9599. And as always, live sharp. Living Sharp is a lifestyle here at TBB's. You need to look sharp, carry sharp, and most importantly, be sharp. Let us show you how sharp it can be today. We're pushing ourselves to take as many walk-ins at both locations, but if we can't squeeze you in, we'll make a convenient appointment for you. Give us a call at 970-617-2158 for our Loveland location located at 4th and Garfield or in Mead at 720-745-0783 on the southeast corner of Highway 66 and I-25. If you're tech savvy, hit us up on tommysbarbersandblades.com and as always, live sharp. How much is our government hiding from us? What's the truth about COVID-19? Are climate engineering operations robbing our rain? If you want answers, tune into the commercial-free, non-political Global Alert News Hour, Sundays at 1 p.m. on KHNC 1360 AM. As 1360 continues to grow, we want to know what our listeners think. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Give us your feedback. Go to 1360KHNC.com and hit the contact button and give us your thoughts. You're listening to the Roar of the Rockies, KHNC, 1360 AM, Johnstown, Greeley, Loveland, Fort Collins. 